All right, open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 17. <clears throat> I was going to do uh, actually Genesis 18, 19, and 20 today, but um, I, I, I kind of got stuck in the end of, of chapter 17, and we're going we're gonna to basically look at the second part of Genesis chapter 17, and we're going to start... Uh, in verse 18, i tell you what I think I'm going to do. Um, I think I'm going to begin reading in verse 9. And I'm going to read through verse 21. Because that's where we're going to really concentrate today is between verses 9 and 21. And then we're going to uh, work our way through those verses. But we're going to kind of start on the back end of this. We're going to start in verses 18 and 21. But let's just read the whole thing in context. So let's start in chapter 17. Let's read from verse 9. You can follow along with me. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male child in your generations. He who is born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not your descendant, he who is born in your house and he who is bought with, I'm sorry, bought with your money must be circumcised and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Then God said to Abraham, as for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her and also give you a son by her. Then I will bless her and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples shall be from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? And shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael shall live before you. Then God said, No, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. And he shall beget twelve princes and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this time next year. Okay, so let's talk about this. Uh, I want to start. On the latter part of what I just read, specifically verses 18 through 21, before we work our way back into 
talking about the covenant that God established with Abraham. I want you to see in Genesis 17, 18, I want you to hear the cry of Abraham's heart. Now, this is Abraham's son, Ishmael. Remember the story. Abraham was promised descendants, but he didn't have any. And, uh, and so him and Sarah got tired of waiting for God to come through for them. And so they came up with this idea. And Sarah gave um, her maid servant, Hagar, to Abraham. And Abraham slept with Hagar. And she conceived and bore him a child. And his name is Ishmael. <clears throat> now Ishmael is 13 years old as this is taking place. Because it records a little bit later on that Abraham, down in verse 24, was 99 years old when he was circumcised. And the next verse tells us that Ishmael was 13 years old when that happened. And so Abram, Abraham does not have Isaac yet. God has just told Abraham, this time next year, Sarah will give you a child. And you'll call, you'll call his name Isaac. But listen to the cry of Abraham's heart in verse 18. And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Do you understand what Abraham is saying? Abraham is saying, I want Ishmael to be the child of promise. God can't Ishmael be the one. And God says, no. See, the problem a lot of times really all the time, is not that God doesn't answer our prayers. It's just that God doesn't always answer our prayers the way we want Him to. And oftentimes we think because God hasn't answered our prayers the way we want Him to, that means He hasn't answered our prayers. Like the only thing God can answer and the only thing God is supposed to answer for us is, yes, I'll do it your way. But we are not Frank Sinatra and neither is God, right? So, Abram... Got his answer. Oh, that Ishmael may live before you, God. And God said, no. Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. Do you see the pleading of Abraham? I mean, God just told him, your wife's going to, I'm going to give her a son. His name's going to be Isaac. She is going to bring forth kings from her womb. And Abraham says to God, no, God, I want Ishmael to be the one. So why is this story in the Bible? Other than it's a historical account. See, this is the question we always have to ask ourselves because God is not put in... Do you realize, do you really think... Let's just, let's just take the Bible literally, okay? And let's just say that there have been some generations skipped in the genealogies. And let's just say that humankind... Let's just take it back to 10,000 years, okay? Just bear with me. You... Uh, old earth people. Let's just pretend that the Bible really is true and the earth is not billions and billions of years old like, you know, Carl Sagan says it is. Uh, he knows the truth now. He's not here. Uh, but let's just say, let's say 10,000 years, okay? Uh, count, counting from the genealogies and, and believing that a day is a day. Do we really believe that everything God has done, even for his people, 
even concerning Israel and the promises that lead up to Jesus Christ. Do we really believe that everything that's happened is recorded in this little bitty book right here? No way. John says in his gospel, just the things that Jesus did when he walked the earth, if they were recorded, the world couldn't contain them. And so, I want you to understand this. There are a lot of things God could have put in the Scripture that He didn't put in the Scripture. But everything He did put in the Scripture, He put it there for a reason. Now, I believe Abraham is a real guy. I believe Ishmael was really the son of Abraham. I believe Isaac was really the son of Abraham and Sarah. These are real people. These events really happen. But Genesis is not just a historical account to give us a historical record of people's lives. It's written for us to communicate something to us. And it's communicating truth to us. Truth. What, what truth? Who is the truth? Jesus said, I am the way. I am the life. I am the truth. Jesus said, I am the truth. The truth is personified in Jesus. And what truth this Bible is communicating to us is the truth of Jesus Christ. So why did God put the story of Abraham and Ishmael and Isaac in the, in the Scripture? Because it's communicating a truth about Jesus Christ to us. It is communicating the gospel to us. So what are we to take from this? And notice this, the Bible doesn't hold back. Have you noticed that the Bible includes the good, the bad, and the ugly of, of humanity and of God's people? I mean, don't you think the Bible says love covers a multitude of sin? So don't you think if God really would have loved King David, he would have left that little detail about him committing adultery and having the woman's husband murdered out of the Scripture? I mean, I mean, after all, who wants a king that's an adulterer and a murderer? Not only that, but the, the, the Messiah came from him. I mean, how embarrassing is that? How many of you have things within your family that you're kind of embarrassed of? You know, we always say, everybody's got skeletons in their closet. Well, we try to hide our skeletons. Guess what God does? God throws the closet door open and says, here, look at, look, you can look through my closet and see all the skeletons. I'll, I'll pull them out and I'll, I'll write a book about them so you can read it. That's what God does. So the scripture records everything for us. Because why? Because God takes everything. God takes the good and he takes the bad. He takes the beautiful and he takes the ugly. And you know what he does with it? He brings about his plans and his purposes. He works all things together for good. That's what God does. He works all things together for his glory. That should encourage you. That's good news for you and for me today. Because our failures, our failings, don't, listen, it doesn't disrupt God. God doesn't fall off of his throne every time you make a mistake or every time you fall. God's big enough to handle it. He knew it before you did. And so here we have the story. So the question, it begs the question, why? Why is God putting this in here? We need to ask ourselves, why is God showing us Abraham's plea here? His really and truly, 
if we get right down to it, I know this may be hard for some of you to understand, but this really was a sinful plea of Abraham. You say, well, he just loved his son. Wouldn't any father want that for his son? Yeah, but here's the thing. He knew what God had already said. He knew what God had already planned and purposed. God had already revealed it. And God, Abraham is saying, God, I don't want your plan. I want my plan. Can't Ishmael be the one? And God says, no, he can't. So the plea of Abraham before God in Genesis 17, 18 is a plea from the carnal nature of Abraham. This is the cry of a heart when God crucifies and puts away our flesh. This is really our cry. This is, here's our cry. Oh God, can't I live before you the way I am? God, can't I live before you and have what I want? Does it always have to be what you want, God? Can't I live before you? And can't I have my way sometimes, God? After all, don't I deserve it? McDonald's tells me I do. This is the cry of our carnal nature, the cry of our flesh. We cannot live before God in the flesh. The flesh or the carnal nature has got to be put away. Here's how we understand it in New Testament terms. We must be crucified and buried with Christ so that we can be raised in Christ and live before him in the life of the Spirit. And we're like children sometimes who don't understand why our parents won't let us have what we want, but our parents know things that we don't know. Our parents see things that we can't see. Our parents have knowledge of things that we cannot have knowledge of. And if that's true for earthly parents, how much more true is that for God? And you moms and dads, don't you want your children to trust you? Don't you want your children to trust that you have their best interests at heart and that when you say no, when you don't give them what they want, that you're really doing it for their good, even though they can't see it, even though they don't understand it, and even though everything is communicating to them that what you're telling me, mom and dad, is not good, it's bad because it goes against what I want. And we want our children to trust us in those times. Guess what? God wants you to trust him. That just because you can't see and just because you can't understand and just because everything is communicating the opposite to you, God knows things you don't know, sees things you can't see, has already ordered things you have no clue of. And so sometimes we are left to just say, you know what, God, I don't get it, but I trust you because you have revealed to me who you are. So we can't live before God in the flesh any more than Ishmael could. We must be born again by the Spirit as children of promise in Christ. Only Isaac would live before God. Only Isaac was the child of promise. We do not inherit the promise in the flesh. We inherit the promise as children of faith in the Spirit. We have to be born again by the Spirit. And then we're brought into the presence of the Father to live before Him 
in eternal union in Christ. This is what Jesus is telling his disciples in John 14. I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to come back. When are you going to come back? I'm going to come back after my resurrection. Having prepared a place, having made a way where there was no way, my blood sprinkled is going to be the atonement, not the temporary atonement, but the eternal atonement. This is a picture of the day of atonement. These feasts, again, God gave the feast to Israel for a reason, not just so that they could have a party every year at a certain time of the month. He gave them the feast because the feast spoke of eternal truths, just like the tabernacle and the temple on earth. They were never meant to last forever. They were only types and shadows of the eternal that is of the heavens. And this is what God is communicating to us through this this account of Ishmael. This is why God created Ishmael. This is why God allowed Ishmael to come forth. Because Abraham, not only did Abraham need to know, but you and I need to know that we will never inherit the promise through the works of the flesh. So the promise of God to make Ishmael fruitful. Look at this. So, So Abraham cries out, God, can't Ishmael live before you? He says, no. He cannot. Isaac is going to be the child of promise. But look what he says in verse 20. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him. I will make him fruitful, and I will multiply him exceedingly, and he'll uh, bear 12 princes, and I will make him a great nation. So the promise of God to make Ishmael fruitful reveals that even though God can make our own works fruitful and use them for his plan and his purpose, and God did that with Ishmael. His promise to his children, listen, his promise to his children, his promise to those who are of the promise is not according to the work of the flesh. It's according to the work of the Spirit. So listen, like Ishmael, we may do great works and even become a great nation according to the flesh. But as great as we may become in the flesh, it is all fleeting. For only the promise of God in Christ according to the Spirit is eternal. Jesus summed it up like this. What does it profit a man if he gain the whole world but lose his own soul? Build your empires, build your wealth, build all of this. Make it seem as though you are invincible. There are people on earth who believe that about themselves. Listen, uh, you know, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I do believe there are real conspiracies. And I'm not so naive as to think that, uh, you know, men like Alexander the Great or Caesar or Napoleon or even Adolf Hitler were the last ones who ever had a desire to control the world. And no doubt there are men today, probably men that we we don't even know what they look like, and we don't even know their names, who are so rich and so powerful, they feel like somehow they are the ones pulling the strings on planet Earth, driving this earth ship. Because that's what's in the heart of fallen man. Fallen man wants to be in control. It's just that some fallen men have a sphere of influence and control greater than others. Our sphere of influence may be very small. It may just extend over our family, over our jobs, over 
you know, but there are other men who have great power and great wealth whose sphere of influence may reach across this globe. And in their pride and in their great nation building and in all that they have produced through the works of their flesh, they may think that they are kind of on top of the food chain. God says to the psalmist, don't worry about the wicked. The psalmist asked God, why does the wicked, why do the wicked prosper, God? And the righteous seem to have hardship. And God says, don't worry about the wicked. All flesh is like grass. It will fade away. And before you know it, it will be gone. This is the lesson. Listen, this is the lesson that the Scripture wants us to learn. So you have Ishmael here, and you've got his father Abraham crying out to God, please, can't Ishmael be the one? God says, no, he can't be. I'll make him a great nation. I'll make him fruitful. He'll do great things in the flesh. He'll have lots of descendants. What you want for Ishmael, you'll see that he has those things. He's going to be taken care of in that sense. But Ishmael will not be the son of promise. Ishmael may inherit things and come to possess things of this world, but Ishmael and those who trust in the works of the flesh will not inherit the eternal promise. What God promises us as his children is not fleeting. It's not temporal. It's not even of this earth. It is eternal. That doesn't mean we don't have earthly enjoyments. We're going to talk about that a little bit here in, in the very, just in a few paragraphs, okay? So we enter into that promise not by the works of the flesh, not by our own works, but by faith. We enter into the promise by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. Galatians 3 Let's, let's turn over there, 3.26. Galatians 3.26. And while we're there, we'll look at another scripture here in Galatians. Galatians 3.26, Paul writes this. He says, For you are, you, you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. I'll just continue from there. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Verse 29. And if you are Christ, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Romans 4.16 says, therefore, it is a faith that it might be according to grace so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Now, here's the other scripture I want us to look at in Galatians. Galatians chapter 4. Paul gives us the commentary about Ishmael and Isaac. So remember, the best interpretation of the Bible is always the Bible. And so 
in Galatians chapter 4. Let's begin reading in verse 22. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who is of the bondwoman, that's Ishmael, is born according to the flesh. And he of the free woman, that's Isaac, is born according, is born through the promise. Which things are symbolic. Now there you go. God did these as an example. God caused this history to come about because he wanted you and I to learn something right here today and for the rest of our eternal lives in Christ Jesus. That we did not inherit that eternal promise through our works of the flesh. We inherit it through the promise of God and by faith. So he says, which things are symbolic? For these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar, that was Ishmael's mother. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. Paul was speaking in earthly terms. He says, look, all these people coming to you, Galatian Christians, wanting to make you Jews, wanting you to be uh, under the law. And live according to the law, telling you that the only way you can be saved is to follow the law. He says, they're trying to put you under bondage. This is, these are the works of the flesh. You're not going to inherit the promise by the works of the flesh. He said, this is the problem with the Jerusalem down below, the city of Jerusalem. But, look at verse 28, but the Jerusalem above. Well, what in the world is he talking about? Jerusalem above, above where? Well, we don't have time to do this today, but if you went to Revelation 19 and Revelation 22, you'll see that in the book of Revelation, John is shown the new Jerusalem, the holy Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. And the angel says to John, let me show you the bride of the Lamb. Who's the Lamb? Jesus is the Lamb. Who's his bride? The church is his bride. He's talking about the church, the people of God. God likens us to a city. We are the church, the bride of the Lamb, he says. List, Paul says, the covenant you have come into is not about the Jerusalem here who's all about the law. The covenant you've come into is about the Jerusalem above, the people of God who are of the promise by grace through faith. Verse 28, now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of the promise. But as he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, even so it is now. Remember what I said a while ago about these people who think they're running things? See, if you watch the news every day and read the newspaper every day and buy into what everyone's telling you, you're going to live your life in fear. You're going to be fearful that someone's going to come over here and cut your head off. You're going to be fearful that uh, somehow our nation's going to be taken over. You're going to be fearful that... Somehow they're going to take uh, the American dream away from you. Listen, God didn't send his son to die for you so that you could have an American dream. I'm sorry. He did not send his son to die for you so that you could even have an America. God sent his son to die for you so that you could become a child of promise. I want America and the American dream to last as long as it possibly can. But that is not the point of our salvation. That is not who we are. We should not fear 
because we're going to lose something of some measure of earthly freedom or earthly dream or earthly anything. Here is a principle. Galatians 4.29, the children born according to the flesh always persecute the children born according to the spirit and according to the promise. Ishmael persecuted Isaac. Esau persecuted Jacob. The world persecuted Jesus. And the world persecuted the church. And the world is still persecuting the church. Right now, Christians are spilling their blood for faith in Jesus Christ. The children of the flesh will always persecute the children of the promise. What should we do with that? Well, the first thing we should do is realize that's the way it is. Because there is enmity between the flesh and the spirit. Who ultimately is going to fight our battle? God is. Who ultimately has already given us the victory? Christ has. What do we have to be afraid of? What is the worst thing that could happen to us? I know, I know most Americans don't want to even think about it. And to be honest with you, I don't think the worst case scenario is going to happen. But let's just pretend for a moment. Let's just say the worst case scenario does happen. What is the absolute worst thing anyone in the world could do to you? Take your life? What is that going to do? Just usher you right into the presence of the Lord. That's the worst thing that can happen to us as Christians. What are we afraid of? See, when you realize that and you begin to read church history and you read how these Christians went out and they went to their deaths with smiles on their faces and songs on their lips and in their hearts. And you think, how could they do that? It's because they had a revelation of something that so transcended this world and this earth that they did not fear death. And they knew that the greatest weapon that they had against their enemies was not a sword or a knife or a gun. The greatest enemy they had against their enemies was the gospel because if their enemies were transformed by the power of the gospel, guess what? They would not be their enemies anymore. What did God do when we were his enemies? He sent his son, who is the gospel, and he made those who were his enemies not his enemies anymore. I was an enemy of God. I'm no longer an enemy of God. In a sense, God did. God killed me. <laughs> he crucified me with Christ. And through my death, I was raised up a child, no longer an enemy. This is the answer. Now, I don't expect our president or our Congress or our generals to get that. But I do expect that the church should get this. Those who profess to be believers in Jesus Christ should get this. That the answer for the world is Jesus. And we 
have Jesus. And the question is, what are we doing with Jesus? Are we giving him to the world? Are we praying that our enemies become our brothers and our sisters? I'm not saying, listen, God will do what is just. Those who need to be justly judged and punished, trust me, God will do it. But it's not my place to do that. It is my place to preach, to teach, to live the gospel. God will take care of what needs to be taken care of. And listen, trust me, on that day, when those who reject Christ enter into their judgment, there is not anything any person or any nation on earth could do to them that is going to be a greater punishment and a greater judgment than what God will do when he casts them out of his presence into eternal damnation. We have been delivered from that. We are not children of the flesh. We are children of the promise. But don't think it's strange when the children of the flesh are persecuting the children of the promise because God said that is the way it has always been. Now let's bring that to our personal lives. This is the issue we have personally it's one thing to read about it in the news and to watch it on YouTube and on CNN. But, but the greater point is this. You have a battle. I have a battle going on within me. My flesh is persecuting my spirit. My flesh is enmity against my spirit. My flesh does not want to submit to God. My flesh does not want to live surrendered to the will of God. And this is why... The Bible says the only solution for my flesh is not to train it better, it is to crucify it. Because until it's dead, it's going to want to rule over me. And this was Paul's point there in Galatians, talking about Ishmael and Isaac. So then we will never be justified by the works of the flesh. We are justified by faith in the work of Christ. Through faith in Christ, we become heirs according to the promise. And the fruit that God demands is the fruit of the Spirit working in us through faith in Christ. So Ishmael here represents the works of the flesh that will never live before God. It must be cast out. It must be put away in order to make room for the work of the Spirit and the promise of God. Now let's go back a little bit farther and let's go back to verse 9 through 14 of Genesis 17 when God is talking to Abraham about this covenant. And he says this is going to be the sign of the covenant. It's going to be circumcision. Now, I think we all understand what that word means and what that word represents. So the sign of the covenant is the cutting away of the flesh. The sign of circumcision is about something being cut away. It's about something being taken away, namely the flesh. And God says, 
my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. Or Paul writes it this way in Galatians 2.20, one of my favorite verses in all of the Bible that communicates so many things to us. But this verse also communicates about this covenant. And Paul is talking about what has been taken away, what has been cut away. He says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. So he says the flesh has been taken away, but I have a life I live in the flesh. How do we understand that? So God says, my covenant would be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the circumcision made without hands is still in our flesh in the sense that our flesh has been cut away or crucified with Christ. God no longer sees our flesh that has been crucified and buried with Christ. Or as 2 Corinthians 4.16 says, God no longer and we no longer know any man according to the flesh. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. So it's an everlasting covenant in our flesh by the simple fact that the flesh has been taken away in Christ. The life I now live in the flesh, or the way to understand what Paul says there in Galatians 2.20, the, the life I now live in this flesh body, I live by faith in the Son of God. Faith in what? Faith that my flesh, my old carnal man, was crucified with Christ. Faith that God now sees the flesh taken away, cut away, because he now sees me by faith in the Spirit. In Christ, God knows me in His Son. If you're born again today, God knows you in His Son. So in one sense, circumcision is an everlasting covenant based on what is not there. And yet in another sense, it's also based on what is there, namely faith in obedience. Now, Paul told the Gentiles, do not... Allow the Jews to talk you and to be circumcised into your flesh because thinking that that was your entrance into the covenant, thinking that the only way you can truly be saved in Jesus Christ is to keep the law. Then if you keep the law then and you become Jews, then you can be saved. Paul says no. That's why he goes into this whole thing about Ishmael and Isaac. Isaac represented Mount Sinai, the law and bondage. He says, no, you are children of promise through faith in Jesus Christ. The circumcision that you must undergo is not with hands. It's of the heart made without hands. It's not what a man is going to do to you. It's what God is going to do by his spirit in your heart. But now let's go back to Genesis. God says this was going to be an everlasting covenant in your flesh. So is God lying? Absolutely not. He was not lying. So then how could Paul and the writers of the New Testament change what God said by telling these Christians now they don't have to get circumcised in the flesh? Aren't they violating what God has said in his word? That's exactly what the Jews thought Paul was doing. You know why they thought that? Because the Jews missed the whole reason God did this to begin with. 
Because God never instituted circumcision, that circumcision would be a means unto an end in itself. He instituted that because even that points us to Christ. Specifically, it points us to the cross and the crucifixion of ourself, of this carnal old man, this body of sin that has to be done away with. So now in Christ, we are marked by a crucified life, the cutting away of the entire carnal man, not just part of him. In terms of the promises and the covenant, now in Christ, there is no longer Jew or Gentile. There's no longer slave or free. There's no longer male or female. That's what we just read in Galatians 3.28. In other words, the sign of the covenant and the promise is no longer limited to a Jew or to a male or to a free man. The sign of the covenant and of the promise is a crucified life that's to be administered to all and seen in all. Why? Because Christ is all and in all. Because your identity is not female. Your identity is not Jew or not Jew. Your identity is not slave or free. Your identity is Christ. God the Father doesn't know you any other way except in His Son. And if He looks and sees what is not supposed to be there, listen, when God sees the old man, God doesn't know us. He has no dealings with us. It's only until we are crucified, until that old man is cut away and put away, He is no longer there. And when He's no longer there, at the very same time he's put away, the Bible says we put on a new creation. This is exactly what Paul's writing about in Colossians 3. He says the same thing in Colossians 3. He says we put on a new man. There is now in Christ neither Jew nor Greek. He, he uses the same Christ is all, but Christ is all and in all. So at the very same time we put away the flesh, we cut away the flesh through the cross of Christ, we put on a new creation. We become a new man. And when God sees us as a new man in Christ, he not only sees what's not there, he sees what is there. He sees the life of Christ. He sees our faith and he sees our obedience in Christ because Christ is our obedience. Because you and I can't be obedient enough for God. So what do we do? We continuously fall upon the grace of God, trusting in, not to justify our disobedience, but, but to motivate us to greater obedience because of our love for Christ and our love for the Father. So the work of the flesh is anything we do that works contrary to the fruit of the Spirit, the will of God and the glory of God. There are those things that we do for our own glory and our own increase at the cost of his increase and his glory. John the Baptist said, I must decrease so that he may increase. Abraham cries out, oh God, that Ishmael could live before you. That was not a cry for the glory of God. That was not a cry for the increase of God's glory and God's plan. That was a cry from the carnal heart of a man who wanted his plan and his own increase. So the works of the flesh will never bring about the promise of God to his children. The sign of circumcision is the cutting away of the flesh, which is symbolic of the crucified life. The crucified life is the death 
of our carnal man and our carnal plan and the birth of a new creation in Christ living in and according to the will of the Spirit. This is why we believe baptism now in the New Testament is the sign of the covenant. It is the sign of our death, our burial, and our resurrection with Jesus. It is the sign that we have been cut away. It's not just a sign for boys, as it was in the Old Testament, for obvious reasons. It's now a sign for everyone who is in Christ, because in Christ there's neither male nor female anymore. There's not Jew nor Greek anymore. We are called, all of us, to be buried and crucified, crucified and buried with Christ. And so the sign of the covenant is the cutting away of our flesh, but the sign of the covenant is not the cutting away of our joy. So all this talk of crucifixion and all this talk of cutting away the flesh, it it can become kind of morbid. It can make you think that God is just this giant cosmic killjoy up in the sky just wanting to ruin all of your fun. Oh, it is just the opposite. It is just the opposite. We can raise our children and think that we're just a bunch of lawgivers looking for lawbreakers as we administer the law to our children. But that should not be the way it is. It should be that we teach our children that the law and keeping the law should bring joy to us. Our obedience should be a point of joy. It should motivate us to find joy, to rejoice. Parents, you shouldn't be afraid to discipline your children because the Bible says that that God disciplines those children whom he loves. That marks them as legitimate children. But teach your children through discipline and correction that the point is that there is joy to be found in life. The sign of the covenant is not the cutting away of our joy. Listen to Jesus' words in John 15, 10 through 12. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Jesus said, keep my commandments and know that I want, I'm telling you this because I want your joy not only to be full, but I want it to remain. Jesus wants us to be joyful. He died for his and for our joy. Joy must be a part of the crucified life because joy must be an expression of the Christian life. Listen, there is no Christian life apart from a crucified life. And joy must be an expression of the Christian life. It is the Spirit's fruit. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. There is the cutting away or death of the old carnal man so that joy can come. We only have been deceived into thinking that if we could just have our way and do everything that we wanted to do, we would somehow find joy and happiness and fulfillment. Can I tell you how many people come to a tragic realization of that? Either through grievous regret in their latter years or people who finally reach a point of hopelessness and said, I can't live any longer, and they end their life because they realize this is not where joy is. This is not where fulfillment is. 
Our carnal man is the old man before we're born again of the Spirit. Our carnal plan is anything we do to glorify, to feed, to build up that old man in the lust of his carnal mind. Many things are obviously against the will of God, but, but when we talk about our good works or our good plans, whatever they may be, it becomes more of a question of why instead of what. So God has created us for good works that speak of Him, that speak of His glory, and that should speak of His and our own joy. So why does a painter paint? Why does a writer write? Why does an artist create? Why does the carpenter build or the teacher teach? Why do you do what you do? Whatever you do, why do you do what you do? Well, it's what I love to do, Pastor Jeff. It's what I feel like I'm gifted to do. It's what I feel like I'm called to do. Yes! Who gifted you to do that? Who called you to do that? Who gave you the joy to do that? God did. So it must be first and foremost for his glory and never our own. But that is not to the exclusion of our great joy and fulfillment in doing those things that God has prepared for us to do and given us a desire to do. He has done this for his glory. But in his glorification is our joy. In his glorification is our fulfillment. If we could just understand this, God has done everything from the very beginning to the very end. Through all eternity, he has done it all for his glory. But in his glory and in his glorification, we find our joy. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The sign of the covenant, the sign of a crucified life is not to the exclusion of our joy. It is for the fullness of our joy. So the sign of the covenant is for the cutting away of our flesh, but not the cutting away of our joy. The death of the old man must come so that the life of the new man can be raised up. And in that life, we find our greatest joy, our greatest fulfillment, because in that, we glorify him. Amen. Let's all stand. Your life, my life, must speak something. It must communicate something. We have watermarks and events throughout our life, a baptism an experience, an epiphany as you read the scripture. It could be anything, small or great. But the point is, not that, there were, not that we're going from experience to experience. A lot of people in the church, this is the way they live. They're just going from church to church, from meeting to meeting, trying to have a greater experience than they had before. That is not what God has called us to. 
God has called us to live our life every day right in the nitty-gritty. I mean in the mundane, in the good, the bad, and the ugly, through the struggle of it all. He's called us to live our life. He's called us to understand that the children of the flesh will always persecute the children of the Spirit. He's called us to understand that we will have tribulation in this world, but we are to be of good cheer because He has already overcome the world. And if we understand what Christ has already bought for us, what he has already achieved for us, what he has already delivered to us, our absolute, total, and complete victory, then we can go through this life and we have no reason to fear. I didn't say it would be easy. I didn't didn't say we wouldn't have our moments. But when it all is said and done, we have to bring ourselves back to this reality. If God is for me, who can be against me? If nothing and no one can separate me from the love of God, what do I have to fear? If God has already warned me that this is what life is going to be like, but this is not the end, this is passing away. God is bringing heaven and earth together. We're not going to fly away and live in heaven one day. Do you understand this, church? Read the back of your Bible. We are going to live on this earth and God is going to bring heaven to earth. Heaven and earth are going to be joined together. That day, in that day, there will be no more death. There will be no more suffering. There will be no more injustice. There will be no more children of the flesh to persecute the children of the promise. That day is coming, but it's not today. But we have the surety of that. We have already been guaranteed that. So we have today nothing to fear, even in the face of our persecution, even in the face of our valleys, even in the face of darkness. We have nothing to fear because God has given us a sign. He's given us a covenant that is eternal and everlasting to take away that which is death and to bring that which is life and joy unspeakable and full of glory. Father, we pray that you would, by your spirit, open our hearts and open our minds. God, we need for you to open our blind eyes and open our deaf ears. God, we can't comprehend this with our minds With our intellect, God, this has got to get into our hearts. It's got to get down into our spirits. And I pray, God, that you would make us hungry and thirsty. As the deer pants for the watered brook, so our soul would long after you, God, that we would have a revelation of Christ, that when we read, whether it's Genesis 17, 18, 19, or Revelation 22, that, God, we would read the Scripture, and you would open our eyes and give us a revelation of Jesus Christ on every page of the Scripture. That, God, you have filled this word with a message, with a truth that is just overflowing from the pages of this book we call the Bible. God, illuminate these words. Illuminate your scripture. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Change us, God. Transform us. Conform us to the image of the Son. Deliver us from fear. Give us discernment, God, that we would not listen to and look at and believe the lies that are filling our minds and our ears and our eyes every day. Give us eyes to see the lovely, the beautiful. That's Christ. Give us eyes to see the truth. Give us hearts to receive it. Help us to walk it out for your glory. Help us to find our joy in you, not in this world, not in our own plan, not in our own ways. 
Help us, God, find our joy in you, in your will, for your glory. We ask this, God, in Jesus' name. Amen.